Hello, City Roaders, Dallas Rogers here, and today is our 50th episode. And we're pretty excited about this. And to celebrate, I'm talking to Nicole Gurren, who was the very first guest on City Road back about three and a half years ago. And here's a fun fact for you. Did you know that Elizabeth Farrelly launched City Road at the Festival of Urbanism in 2017? There'll be other fun facts like that today in this City Road episode. But there'll be some serious discussion too. I'm talking with Nicole Gurren about her recent work on informal housing. And we go back to her very first episode on Airbnb and cities. Strap yourself in. This is City Road's 50th episode. About three and a half years ago, you were the very first guest on City Road. And something that people might not know is that you actually named City Road. When we were tossing around what we should call this show, it was actually you that came up with City Road. And something that that people might not know as well is that you actually incubated City Road out of the Urban Housing Lab. This is a, a project that we funded in the lab What's it like to look back on the show, being the first guest, incubating this, and I guess your own work from all those years? What feels like an eternity ago now? Well, Dallas, you're very, very generous because that uh, we were all of us sitting literally on City Road, <laughs> which is the road outside the Wilkinson building. And I remember the discussion well, but it was absolutely a team discussion. And essentially, that's what the Urban Housing Lab was set up to do, was to incubate great ideas that arose organically from the members of the lab, which was you, you know, and you happen to have a communications degree and a whole lot of expertise. And so that's exactly what something like the Urban Housing Lab was able to do was just say, yeah, you know, go and do it. And um, from my perspective, I then had the pleasure of being interviewed by you and then listening to the 50 episodes that have happened since then. And I'm sure more episodes to come. But it was an important thing that we decided to back you in doing, and that was around disseminating research. And we knew that it wasn't going to be a huge audience, but it was going to be a bigger audience than the audience that read our journal articles, for instance. But we did want to make sure that we weren't just sort of shooting the breeze either, because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of commentary out there and there's a lot of opinion out there. And we did want to have a space where there was a time to talk about academic research, but in a way that's slightly more accessible, perhaps to, you know, a wider public, even if it's, even if it's a public mostly of urbanists. But, you know, so there was something around that in City Road and you've taken it to great places and you really have expanded the audience for urban research and for urban discussions and also the participants. So the people who you've had on this show has been absolutely, you know, fantastic and I'm really honoured actually to be invited back for the 50th celebration episode. And the lab itself is growing as well. It kind of felt like not such a big group when I first joined, but now we feel like a a very big group. Tell us a little bit about the change in the lab itself. Yeah, I mean, that's 
been the most wonderful thing. And again, it's been a very organic process. You know, this is not your your typical scientific lab where, you know, there's a, a defined leader and that, you know, person typically, you know, a, a senior white male, if I may say so, <laughs> but where that, <laughs> where that person, you know, directs their underlings to, you know, essentially work on their projects. I mean, the, the Urban Housing Lab is absolutely the very opposite of that. And I remember the first day when we were talking about City Road and the people around that table were, you know, Tarana Lazade, who's now leading up her own incubator on infrastructure, Samrita Saka, who is just set up a new lab on urban science, so she remains part of the Urban Housing Lab. Catherine Gilbert, who was just doing a PhD, she's got a postdoc. Charlouis, just finished her PhD. A lot of people, too many people to name. And if I did name everyone, it would actually, quite frankly, sound boastful. Mm -hmm. But we didn't close the door. You know, it was specifically supposed to be a dynamic place to incubate people and ideas. Around a table, literally, we sit around a table, we still sit around a table and everyone brings something from their own work or from their life experience, whether they're just starting on their PhD or, you know, we also have a lot of very senior career academics as well who also come and join us. So I hope it will continue to evolve like that. Take us back to the first episode. It's an episode on Airbnb and cities, the informal digital economy. It's still actually one of our most popular episodes. It's got one of the biggest downloads for any episode. It was also rebroadcast by The Conversation, and there's a lot of hits to the show on that channel as well. What do you think about when you look back at that episode now? I mean, it's the perfect time to look back because we've come full circle, haven't we? I mean, when I first started doing research on Airbnb, it was kind of a funky thing that a lot of academics, people like us, you know, it was our little tourist secret. Well, we weren't tourists, were we? We were travellers, you know, (laughs) staying in other people's homes and participating in the fabulous sharing economy. And of course, we know that in reality, it was one of the great ironies of the way that platforms have transformed the way that we you know, do a lot of things, actually, but particularly in the housing market. And one of the great, I guess, ironies in something like Airbnb, where, you know, offering, you know, cheap rental accommodation for global tourists, while the residents of the particular city that you're travelling to, you know, and particularly in Sydney, for instance, are often, you know, struggling to access a room in a share house and often they're renting, you know, by the bed if we're talking about low-income students and low-income workers in Sydney. So that's the real irony. If we were ever in any doubt about what Airbnb was doing to, for instance, Sydney's rental market, the recent, you know, flooding of our rental advertisements with ex-Airbnb units in the context of the pandemic shows us that actually uh, it was having an effect on Sydney's tight rental market. And unfortunately, I have to say that the sudden reversal of that with the tourists leaving and the lockdown that we've just been through as well is not likely to lead to any long-term improvement for low-income renters in Sydney either because they a any change is likely to be short-term. We're not seeing any regulation of Airbnb in the near future and rental protections in New South Wales remain abysmal. Mm. 
Is this connected to your current work, which is about informal housing, informal urbanism, taking ideas that are popular in the global south, dragging them over here? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could say that Airbnb was almost the gateway for me to really think about the informal economy in cities and in housing markets. I should mention some of the colleagues and, and recent work also in the urban housing lab like Pranita Shrester, Sophia Malson, Madeline Pill, who had also been doing work around the digital but also in relation to informal urbanism. When we looked at that irony that I just mentioned to you of platforms marketing housing for global tourists in Sydney, we were also able to see a different type of platform, which was mediating access to share housing. And initially, uh, this was very exciting for me as a researcher, because all of a sudden, we had a window on part of the housing market that's always been hidden. And that it's almost been romanticised as well, actually, the arrangements that, you know, perhaps university students, young adults, increasingly kidults, choose to, you know, form share households together. But when we look at the online platforms mediating access to share homes now, we see increasingly a shadow way that households are being formed and often not only are the household arrangements, let's say, different to the ones that were romanticised on sitcoms like Friends, but also the types of housing and accommodation that were being offered were really quite frightening actually. And so that led to a different um, body of work which is looking at the way that informal housing, sometimes it's called beds in sheds for instance. What is informal housing? What are the kind of modalities or types of informal housing? I think that's a key question that people don't really know what that actually means and because it largely is invisible. Yeah, it's a really contested term and it's not actually perfect, you know, in the informal housing. It's, as you said before, it's borrowed from the global south and there are similarities. But we in the Urban Studies paper, for instance, talk about a typology and I'll just talk about the Sydney case for a moment. So in New South Wales over the past decade, there's been a deliberate emphasis in the planning system actually to diversify the housing stock. And one of the ways that we've tried to do that is by encouraging people to build granny flats in their backyard, which they could rent out to people. Now, that arrangement is a kind of, we've dubbed it formal informality because often the residents of the primary house are living there and they own it and they're renting the granny flat, generally not through a real estate agent mm. that they might be. But the housing situation is definitely less formal mm. than if you are renting from a landlord, an absent landlord via a real estate agent. And when you're living in an apartment block, for instance, you know, everyone in their own individual units. So and, that was... And I guess that the planning system makes some part of it formal and then right. the rental component may or may not be formal exactly. depending on how it's rolled out. Absolutely, absolutely, Dallas. Yeah, so that was the starting point on the one hand. But then when we start to started to investigate that type of formalised informality by talking to building inspectors, for instance, and local planners, we discovered another kind of informality which is really illegal or unauthorised dwelling units. And 
Well, on the one hand, again, you'd say there's been a long tradition of that. And I'm talking about, for instance, converted garages or sheds that might be, you know, used often or or perhaps unauthorised extensions to family homes. And often that's something that large families do themselves anyway to meet their own housing needs. But once it's marketised, once, you know, landlords undertake unauthorised or illegal building works and then rent out that accommodation on the rental market, that takes on something different again. And so this was the kind of, we've called it unauthorised, but it may very well be illegal housing and also being offered on the rental market. And then the other type, as you mentioned, are those forms of tenures. So share homes, But also that we call them in our paper secondary residence, so that funny situation where you might be uh, renting from the main occupants of the home, for instance, if you're in a secondary dwelling or uh, there's a formal word for it and that's a border or a lodger. But often the arrangements by which you've entered into that rental agreement aren't quite as um, formalised as, for instance, a residential rental lease. You're on City Road on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney with me, Dallas Rogers. And I'm talking to Nicole Gurren, who helped start City Road and was also the very first guest of the show. We're talking about Nicole's new work on informal housing. And in the next part of our discussion, we get into the research policy nexus and some disastrous housing policies that have just come out in Sydney during COVID-19. And what are the dangers or problems with this form of housing? Well, we talk to building inspectors first and foremost to ask them, you know, what they were uncovering. And unfortunately, it was really shocking, actually. And in fact, Pranita Shrestha, who was on the uh, research team and whose own research has been on informal housing in the global south and particularly in South Asia, she, when we looked at the files that had been maintained by the building inspectors, she saw interiors that were very similar to slum housing in the global south. You know, you're talking about a family living in a metal shed, for instance. You were talking about electrical wires being visible right next to stormwater. We're talking about garages that certainly didn't have internal thermal insulation, for instance, fire risks. And those are just the physical dangers. Now, when we talk about the, for instance, the informal tenures, the room rentals, for instance, the dormitory accommodation, the physical building may be acceptable, although we did uncover examples of illegal subdivisions, even of apartments, which are absolute fire traps. But now when we think in the context of COVID-19 and the risks associated with overcrowding, we can see as well that there's a very real risk in relation to people's health and indeed public health as well in the spread of disease. Mm. And you've done some fairly interesting methodological work thinking about different ways to collect this data because it is invisible. So you need to think through different ways of collecting data. What are some of the ways that you've gone about collecting data on informal housing? Yeah. And I want to say first and foremost that there are actually ethical issues associated with 
investigating informal and illegal housing in Sydney. And the first thing that you want to do as a researcher, the first thing is do no harm. And really the the only solution in in a systemic sense is a supply of social and affordable housing that's adequate to meet the community's needs. And so we were faced with the situation of not wanting to... The last thing that we want is to have a draconian regulatory crackdown, which may further, you know, exacerbate the vulnerabilities of of Mm. tenants who are dependent on this accommodation. So we used... uh, rental advertisements. So we looked at the insights available from online platforms where people list share accommodation and also advertise themselves so they're seeking share accommodation. We interviewed building inspectors. We also talked to housing advocates, so the people who hear the stories every day of people who come to them seeking assistance with either a problem that's emerged in their rental arrangements or they're seeking somewhere to stay. And so those were some of the methods. We've got... um, What about the broader project here about informal housing and informal urbanism? Where do you think this kind of line of research and line of thinking is going? I know that you're working on contributing to that in a fairly substantial way. Mm. Yeah, there's a number of things. As a housing researcher, and in fact, you know, look, if we can talk about the lab for a second, there's been a whole lot of books that have been produced by researchers in the labs, you know, and a couple of those books have looked at the housing system, including some of mine. And so it was a real, I guess, moment of reflection when I thought, well, really our books on housing are only talking about the bit of the housing system that is captured in very standard rental data, housing approvals data. You know, we're not looking at at what's really happening under the surface, but particularly the part of the housing system that's doing the most work, that's accommodating the people that we're most concerned about, low-income and very low-income renters in our cities. So on the one hand, we're trying to really understand what's happening in that system of the housing sector much more deeply so that we can develop appropriate housing responses to it. On the other hand, there are some very positive aspects around more flexible uses of the housing stock and more diverse housing typologies and tenures that we also want to sort of draw attention to and provide support for. And we like to pretend that we don't have people that are living in poverty. Mm, that's right. <laughs> and I mean, like it's the greatest irony that as our house, housing wealth as a nation has grown astronomically and as our wealth as a nation has grown, so has this housing inequality and substandard housing conditions. So we really want to draw attention to that and also understand the something that you've really led our thinking on, Dallas, actually, which is the relationship between sort of digital platforms and also the financialization of housing and how ironically that process is really leading to this deepening inequality and it's taking us, at least at the bottom of our housing system in Sydney, it's taking us backwards, you know, to a time in which the primary concerns of housing policy and urban planning policy were around public health and around providing, you know, very, very basic standards of decent accommodation. And I actually think, unfortunately, that's the place that we find ourselves in again. Mm. 
maybe I'll have to get out from behind this side of the microphone and get on the other side at some point on City Road and talk about my own research. <laughs> Absolutely, Dallas. I'm volunteering to <laughs> lead the interrogation. I did want to ask you one last question, and that's about the research policy interface. And I know that you're very interested in that. And I just had a shock with COVID and the government's response. Where do you think we're at in terms of research policy stuff at the moment? I mean, I you should have a pithy answer to that, shouldn't we? You know, but actually it's I think it's been a kick in the face to researchers, but much, much more so to people at the bottom of the housing ladder. And nothing, I think, would epitomise more the disappointing policy response in the housing space that we've had in the COVID period than the home builder policy, which is offering to subsidise, you know, essentially wealthy renovators and people able to enter into expensive home building projects. I mean, it's a small stimulus. I think it exemplifies everything that's wrong in Australia's housing policy situation. So we've been a bit doom and gloom about home builder. Are there any positive examples of evidence-based policy working or even opportunities for the future? Yeah, of, of course there are. And you know, the obvious one is, is sitting right there and I certainly haven't given up hope. We know that Australia is going to need significant economic stimulus. We know that one of the absolute best ways to do that is through the building industry and we know that there's a pressing need to address uh, the awful housing conditions that have mounted for so long. So I do hope that we will see an economic recovery that has improving Australia's housing um, system front and centre. And there's very, very well-funded proposals on the table that show the flow on economic benefits, but also the housing benefits from that kind of a strategy. So let's hope that the next time we talk, Dallas, it's seeing a massive boost to Australia's social and affordable housing and with it, the great economic and social um, outcomes that such a stimulus program would deliver. It's been so good having you on the 50th episode of City Road Podcast. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Dallas. That was Nicole Gurren talking about her new urban studies paper, which is co-authored with Madeline Pill and Sophia Mallison. I'll put all the details on our website at cityroadpod.org. And that's all for us this week. You're on City Road to SER 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers. This was our 50th episode. See you next time.